first tell me if the speaker is working correctly? Good, thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Peter Glasgold. I would like to welcome you all to this evening's readings and, 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 and performances of the work of seven poets, playwrights, editors, and novelists, pen writers from the Netherlands and, and Flanders. Of these writers, only two have seen their work translated into and published in English. Perhaps this evening will change that. American book publishing, like the rest of American cultural life, popular or otherwise, operates on the star system. At present, we seem to allow at, at least two, but no more than five stars of any magnitude from each of the European countries north of the French and German borders. Currently, the stars from Dutch-speaking countries are two excellent writers, Harry Mürlich and Cés Nodebaum, and an and, and extraordinarily precocious girl named Anne Frank. <laughs> Nevertheless, a good amount of Dutch and Flemish literature has been published here over the last 20 to 30 years. I myself edited or translated and managed to guide into print the work of several Dutch and Flemish writers, among them some, some poets of the 50 years group, avant-gardists such as Gerrit Kavanaar, who emerged from the occupation and the resistance to transform Dutch language poetry for a transformed world. Paul van Ostyen, an astonishing poet who wrote between the wars and brought to Flemish literature the kind of verbal energy we would associate with an Apollinaire or a Vicente Widobro. And Stein Struvels, the crusty Flemish novelist whose The Flaxfield was one of Rosa Luxemburg's favorite books. Most of these works, and those of the stars as well, um, owe their English language incarnations to the efforts of Joost de Witt, a man for whom, who for 25 years assiduously promoted Dutch and Flemish writing in the United States and throughout the world. I've met few Europeans who understand, the American, who understand American publishing as well as he, and fewer still who understand the power of American academia for good or ill to establish and maintain a literary reputation. Thanks to Joost, there are now Dutch writers in residence in America and university programs in Dutch language and literature. All this is by way of saying that sometimes a single event or a single man or woman can serve as a cultural catalyst. After this evening's readings and performances, who will again pick up and carry the banner for Dutch literature in America? So much for exhortation. And now for the interesting stuff. Suzanne van Lohuizen will introduce scenes from her play for children, Wizkid, which won the annual Dutch Flemish Theater Writing Prize in 1992. The scenes translated by Rina Vergano will be read by Al Alan Davis III, a, a, a playwright and director of the Playwrights Workshop of the Puerto Rican Tra uh, Traveling Theater, and Daniel Meltzer, whose play is Square Root of Love, Intermission, 
and movie of the month are published by Samuel French. Daniel Melcher's most recent play, A Cable from Gibraltar, premiered last summer at the New Works Theater in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Suzanne van Lohuizen. Um, I'm very uh, happy that my play can be read here by Alan and Daniel. Um, I'm not going to say much. I, read, uh, I wrote a play for children from four to six, very small children. In the meantime, it has proved to be... Um, apt for very ch small children, but that it can interest an audience from there on until adults. I hope you will like it. Um, they are not going to read the whole play. I made some cutting because the whole play would take a little too long. It's not so long a play. Um, um, we do a big part at the start, then there's a big cut, then a small part in between, and then uh, the end. So I hope you get a coherent idea of the play. Um, I don't think you will actually miss the parts I've left out, but you will, um, you will find the moments um, they make a short break. Well, I hope you listen with pleasure. Uh, Carmel and Jocko are sitting at the breakfast table, both wearing check dressing gowns. Carmel has two humps. Jacko has a tail. Jacko has a bird's cage on his head. On the spot where his heart should be is an alarm clock. Carmel has a telephone in his stomach. Carmel is noisily eating a carrot. Jacko is reading the newspaper. Stop that chomping. I'm not chomping. You're chomping. I am not chomping. You're chomping. I'm not chomping. I am not chomping. I am not chomping. Stop that reading. I'm not reading. You are reading. I'm not reading. You are reading. You are reading the paper. I'm not reading the paper because you're chomping the whole time. Be quiet. Then at least I can read. Stop fiddling with your toes. I'm not fiddling with my toes. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. What are you doing then? I've got an itch. An itch. Itchy toes. Stop that ticking. I'm not ticking. You are ticking. I'm not ticking. I can hear it. That's my heart. Your heart. It's ticking and ticking. Oh, Jocko, it's ticking for me. I wouldn't bet on it. Have a cup of tea. I can't. Why not? My head's locked up. Where's the key? I can't find it. You're so careless. I'm not careless. Only joking. 
Someone's lost it. That's what you always say. Someone's lost it, and that someone is you. Isn't. Is. Isn't. Is. What would I want with the key to your head? That's what I'd like to know. Give it back. I haven't got it. You have got it. I haven't got it. I have got it. You're ticking. I'll tick if I want to. Stop winding yourself up. I'm not winding myself up. You're ticking like a machine gun. Give me back the key. I haven't got it. Who has got it then? The little boy. The little boy? Yes, him. Who is that? Our child. Do we have a child? We have a child. Where is he then? Yes, where is he? Well? We'd had him yesterday. Did we have a child? Yes, we did. What, what kind of child? Well, a child with little eyes and a little nose and little hands and a little bottom. A sweetie pie. Don't say. Blonde hair. Gosh. Bare feet. Well, I never. We had a gorgeous child. He could already walk and talk. Dada. 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 And Mama? He never said that. Only Dada. 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 Nothing else? Oh, yes. What then? Television. Computer. Hydraulic compressor, production system. He said that. He said that. He said all that. And much more besides. What then? Supermarket, supersonic, electrotechnic, telecommunication, Mercedes, Alfa Romeo, Mitsubishi. A gorgeous child, a whiz kid. He could walk on his hands as well. Where is he then? Yeah. Where is he indeed? We had him yesterday. You've lost him. I haven't. Have. Haven't. Have. You're starting again. You started. Didn't. Did. Didn't. Did. You chomp and you shout and you fidget and you fart and you lost our child. You tick and you thrash your tail. Oh, you are angry. So, we've got a child. A gorgeous child. Yeah, yeah, a whiz kid. I'd like to see it with my own eyes. You have to see it. Go and look for him. Me? Who else? You. My head's locked up. I've got itchy toes. Get a move on. Calm down. Something might have happened. Like what? He could have walked into the pond, or under a car, or fallen out of a tree, or stuck his fingers in the electric socket. Those dear little fingers. The world is full of perils. You think so? He could be dead. Our child? Easily. And we only just had him. You should have taken better care of him. <laughs> that gorgeous child. Serves you right. And now he's dead. He's not dead. Perhaps he's dead. Go and look for him. I don't dare to. He isn't dead because he's got the key to my head. Go and look for him and the key. You say he's dead. I don't say he's dead. He's alive? He's alive, and you're going to look for him. Hurrah! Our little one's alive! Jacko paces the room. Carmel searches high and low. We must find him. Yep. He can't be lost. Rue, the thought. Where can he be? Search me. Perhaps he's at school. He's much too young. He already knew his seven times table. But not fractions. The entire alphabet. But not dictation. 
That's precisely why he goes to school, to learn dictation. They don't take children who can't do dictation. That's mean. Mean or not, the world is hard. It's dictation or die. Poor kid. Perhaps he's run off with the circus. What circus? Any old circus with elephants and horses and sea lions who can bounce a ball on their nose and with music and clowns and ta 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 and boom de boom and the ringmaster with his whip crack crack marvelous he hasn't run off with the circus chasing after the music and the gold and glitter and popcorn and dancing girls with bare legs and bare you know what's and acrobats on the high wire and a monkey riding a bicycle. My child has not run off with the circus. What does he think? Make a bit of music, do a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of the other? It's a waste of time. Life's no joke. No joke? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Life is a serious business. You think so? You bet. Poor kid. I must have left him somewhere. Forgotten him? Left him behind. Just like that? Well. Not on purpose, of course. Where, then? I don't know. Well, think. I am thinking. At the post office? Did I go there? Yesterday. I still had him yesterday. Exactly. What was I doing at the post office? How should I know? Why was I there? I don't know if you were there. I'm asking if you were there. I was in the queue at the counter, and then I thought, what am I doing here? Then I left again. So you were there. If you say so. And you had our boy with you. If I was there, then I didn't have him with me. And if you weren't there? Then I did have him with me, perhaps. Where were you then? Shopping. But where? Yeah, Jesus, all over. Where all over? The bakers, at the butchers, at the greengrocers, at the telephone shop. At the telephone shop. So? What the hell were you doing at the telephone shop? Buying a telephone. And why would you be buying a telephone? Because we're clean out of them. Again? We go through them like hotcakes. And whose fault is that? Well, it's not mine. Uh, it's mine, I suppose. I didn't say that. We bought five telephones last week. Well, they're all used up. Right, fine. We are clean out of telephones, and you went to buy a new one. Now, did you have our boy with you then or not? Yes, I had him with me then. And when you left? Then as well. Thank God. And after that? After that what? Where did you go after that? I went home. Straight home? Yes. Not to a bar? No. Cross your heart? Cross my heart. Then he's here. He's in amongst the shopping. What? Of course. He's in amongst the shopping at the bottom of the cart. Why didn't I think of that before? Go and get it. Let's see, a kite? A waffle iron, a tea strainer, a dog's leash. What do we want with a dog's leash? They were on sale. Have we got a dog? Not exactly. So what do we want with a dog's leash? Well, you never know. Do you think money grows on trees? Three paving stones, two pairs of gloves, a pair of false teeth, a thermos flack, and a new telephone. No little boys. What do you think? No, little boys. I thought the stripes would make a change. Where is our boy? Strange, isn't it? I really thought he'd be in there somewhere. I know. What do you know? Where he is. Aha! So you do know. I do know. 
Well, say it then. Shh. Watch. Not so loud. Can you please tell me? Shh. He mustn't hear. Where is he then? Under the table. Under the table? That's where he is. How do you know that? Because I've got an itch. An itch. Itchy toes. It will be the first time. He's tickling them. Tickling what? My toes, of course. <laughs> Cheek of it. Can't you feel anything? Me? No. Not a thing. Did you say under the table? Definitely. What's he doing there? He's hiding. Why? So he can listen in on us. Is he listening in on us? Yes, he can hear everything. It's scandalous. You'd better watch what you say. He's spying on us. He knows everything about us. Everything? Down to the tiniest detail. What we say. And what we do. Not what we do. Oh, yes, he does. That you tick, for instance. And that you chomp. And that you shout. And that you fart. And that you slurp when you're drinking tea. I do not slurp when I'm drinking tea because I can't even drink my tea because that little brat has lost my key. All right, then. But the rest is true, except the last bit. I am deeply ashamed. You should be. It's a dog's life. Dog's life. A child like that. Be quiet. He can hear you. I'll say no more. Neither will I. I'm not saying anything. Neither am I. Can you hear something? I can't hear a thing. Can you? Not a thing. Good. Jacko? Shh. Jacko. Shh. But Jacko, what about. Shh. What about our what? What about our thoughts? What thoughts? Our thoughts. Can he hear those as well? Which thoughts? The thoughts which we have. I don't have any thoughts. That's what you think. I have thoughts? Hundreds of them, all bad. And. Now, you always have bad thoughts. You're chucked full of them. What business is it of yours, actually? Well, I was only wondering. Well? Whether he could hear them. I'm telling you, I don't have any thoughts. And you don't have any thoughts, either. You never have any thoughts. You're much too stupid for that. You've never had one single thought, and it's just as well, too. The only one who has thoughts around here is me. And nobody's going to hear them because my head is locked up. But he's got the key. Well, damn it. Oh, Jocko, you mustn't curse, and certainly not in front of the boy. You should set a good example. Well, damn it. It's not easy having a child. It's a dog's life. We can't go on like this. This is a dog's life. This is madness. We can't keep this up. Our thoughts aren't our own anymore. We can't have a decent conversation anymore. We don't get a wink of sleep. Don't get a moment's rest. And life was so peaceful. Now it's only arguments. We'll have to catch him. Do you dare to? Of course I dare to. He's my own child. Why shouldn't I dare to? He could be dangerous. Ha, 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 ha. That's a good one. That takes the biscuit. Dangerous, the little urchin. He's already got teeth. How many? Twenty or so. Twenty teeth. And all sharp. Nails? Nails as well. Twenty. Including his feet. His feet don't count. Bare feet. Twenty teeth and twenty nails. And all sharp. My child is a monster. And watch out. He's lying in wait. Ready to gobble us up. 
That won't be easy. He starts out with our toes. He nibbles them off. It feels like tickling at first. Don't but then, talk rubbish. Mm, your big toe is gone. Mm, my whole foot. Mm, two legs off, up the knee. Your legs are mine. Doesn't matter. He munches away. Now he's got your tail. My tail? He can leave that alone. Jacko jumps on the table. His legs, the legs of the chair collapse. Oh, Jacko. Help me. He's terribly dangerous. Don't laugh. <laughs> I'm not laughing. You're laughing. <laughs> really, I'm not. Stop laughing. <laughs> I can't help it. Sorry. What for? <laughs> for laughing. I should think so. It's just so funny. It's not funny in the slightest. I fell. I could have broken my neck. I could be dead. That's what's so funny. But the game's up now. I've had enough of his pranks and whims. I'm not going to be harassed by that little pest. Monster or not, he'll learn who's boss around here. Give me the gloves. The gloves? And make it snappy. You too. Me too what? Gloves on. But no fussing. What are you going to do? I'm going to catch him. And you're going to help me from two sides at once. Then he can't escape. And watch yourself because he's dangerous. Not so very dangerous. Tremendously. He deserves punishment. Punishment? Tremendous punishment. It was only a joke. I'll teach him a lesson. What kind of punishment? Worst punishment. No, no, not the worst. Worst of all. Oh, please. Gruesome punishment. He's still so small. In the waffle iron. No. Tied up with the dog's leash. No, no. With all the paving stones no, on top. No, no. Tea strainer in his mouth so he mm. can't screech. No. And then on the fire. That's mean. You can't. You mustn't. Teach him. I'll count to three. No, no, no. no. One. No, no, no. Two. Please, dearest Jackie. No, no, no. My poor little three, boy. Please. Three. Um, Carmel look. He dives under the table. Carmel looks on, wailing, and tries to hold him back. Sound of a car starting up, driving away fast. It's all your fault. It's your fault. You turned him into a milksop. You spoiled him. You didn't bring him up right. Gorgeous child he was. A whiz kid. We had great plans for him. He was going to be a pop star. Or a professor. Or a footballer. Or a manager. Or a famous painter. Or a president. Or just plain happy. And none of that is going to happen. And it's all your fault. It's your fault. You spoiled him rotten. You frightened him. You wanted to have him all to yourself. You never looked at him. Because you sat on top of him like a mother hen. Because you wanted to put him in the waffle iron. Because he was eating my tail up. You just can't take a joke. A joke? Is that a joke? Ha, 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 ha. What do you think of this for a joke? He flings the waffle iron against the floor. Stop it, Jacko. Stop it. You're ticking. Jacko cracks the dog's leash. Who wears the trousers in this house, eh? Who's the boss around here? You're always ganging up with him. You make a fool of me. You'd like it if I broke my neck. He flings the dog's leash across the room. I, I wouldn't, Jocko. Really, I wouldn't. Stop it now. You're ticking much too loudly. You're ticking terribly. Jacko throws the tea strainer, the gloves, and the paving stones. You bet I'm ticking. You're damn right I'm ticking. This is a dog's life. He can come over here. He can sling his hook. He can stew in his own juice. He can, he can. Jocko, stop it, he can, Jocko. He can, as far as I'm concerned, he can go to hell. Oh! Jacko's alarm clock heart suddenly goes off loudly and shrilly. Jacko collapses. Oh, Jacko, you've gone off. You've gone off completely. That's what happens. That's the upshot of all your, those bad thoughts. Your whole head's chock full. It's erupted like a volcano.
telephone rings. Hello? Hello? Who's speaking? My little boy. My dear little boy, are you there at last? Listen, Jocko, our boy is on the telephone. Where are you, my sweetie pie? What's he saying? In my tummy. He's in my tummy. He was inside my tummy all along. I had him with me the whole time. How stupid of me. How tremendously stupid in my tummy. Are you coming out soon, little man? We can't wait to see you. We love you so much. Jocko as well, you know. He's completely gone off. All his bad thoughts exploded, flew up in the air. The waffle iron, the paving stones, and the tea strainer. You should have seen it. I laughed myself silly. No, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's all over. Yes, my treasure, Jocko will get better again. He wants to see his big boy so much. He'll tick and tinkle with joy. You're coming soon? Tomorrow. Tomorrow already. Hurrah! Yes, yes, your crib's all ready, and your potty, and your toy animals, and a whole pile of diapers. We'll clear up the mess. We'll be so happy and so proud. Bye-bye, my big boy. See you tomorrow. Jacko, Jacko, you're ticking. Is there a law against ticking? Hurrah! Jacko. Well, what is it? Give me a kiss. A what? A kiss. Steady on now. Tomorrow, our child is going to be born. He's hammering and kicking with impatience. I can feel it here inside. He's pushing and pulling. He's tossing and turning. He's tickling. I can't stand it. Hey, oh, stop it. <laughs> oh, God. Tomorrow, a child is going to be born. There's joy in the house and love, love all around. Give me a kiss, Jacko. I'd like to, but... Yes, yes. Hurrah, Jacko, we'll kiss each other. Come into my arms. But I can't. Come now. I can't, because my head's locked up. Why, so it is. I'm really sorry. And he's got the key. Can't be helped. I'll phone him up. Leave it. Right now. It's not that important. He'll be pleased. He'll like it if we kiss each other. We can keep it a while longer. Hello? Hello? Perhaps he's asleep. Don't go and wake him up. He's had a tiring day. Shh. Hello? Hello? Hey, you in there? Will you give your father's key back immediately? Sweet boy. Sleep tight, my little treasure. It's coming. I can feel it. Help! Carmel runs to the potty, pulls up her dressing gown, grunts and groans and giggles. The key falls into the potty with a tinkle. Come here, Jocko. Face me. Lean forward. So, he opens the cage with the key. Kiss me, Jocko. They kiss each other. Tomorrow, our child is going to be born. Our gorgeous child. Our whiz kid. The end.
Gerrit Kavanar has published 15 collections of poetry, as well as uh, several novels. He will read his poem, A Clear Day, in Dutch, followed by a reading of Peter Neumeyer's translation, by, uh, read by Lynn Lawner. Then Gerrit Kavanar will read several poems translated by Adrian Henri and by Lloyd Haft. Lynn Lawner, the reader, is a poet and the author of Lives of the Courtesans, Portraits in the Renaissance. So now the, the first poem in my secret language. Uh, it is in Dutch entitled Het is een heldere dag. Het is een heldere dag. Het is een donkere wereld. Tussen het groene gras is het vlees rood. De mensen laten zich breken voor brood. Het is een donkere dag. Het is een heldere wereld. De mensen lachen en alles is mogelijk. Ik ging op weg om een appel te plukken, maar op de weg lag een slang. Het leven is goed, maar het leven kan beter. Al die oorlogen tussen twee eeuwige vredes, al dat doodgaan om langer te leven. Het leven is goed, maar het leven kan beter. Vlees is hartleers, maar zachter dan benen. Ik ging op weg om de dood te ontlopen, maar op de weg stond een ijzeren man. Terwijl de mond toehapt, wordt de lucht al dunner. Terwijl het brood wordt verteerd, is de hand nooddruftig. Terwijl hier het huis wordt beschreven, wordt het elders verbrand. Het is een donkere dag, het is een donkere wereld. De kranten melden hoe het gegaan is en hoe het niet gaan zal. Ik ging op weg om een stad op te bouwen, maar ik tekende torens in kelders. De meester schreef op het bord toekomst, liefde en God hoede het vaderland. En ik vol ogen en mond, ik bootste het na op de lei. Waar buiten danste het tastbare buurmeisje, zwevend alsof er geen zwaartekracht was. Ik ging op weg om de weg te vinden, maar achter de pudding stond een leeg bord. clear day. It's a clear day. It's a dark world. Among the green grass, flesh quite red. People let themselves be broken for bread. It's a dark day. It's a clear world. People laugh and all seems possible. I went on my way to pick an apple but on the road lay a snake. Life is good, but can be better. All these wars, perpetual truces, all this dying to make life longer. Life is good, but can be better. Flesh hard-skinned, still softer than bones. I went on my way to escape the killing, but on the road stood an iron man. 
While the mouth snaps, the air grows rare. While bread is digested, the hand lies empty. I speak here of the house. Elsewhere, it's being burnt. It's a dark day. It's a dark world. Newspapers report how it happened, how it won't happen. I went on my way to build a city, yet only designed towers and cellars. The teacher wrote on the blackboard, future love, God save our country, as all eyes and mouth, I copied the words on my slate. Outside, however, danced a tangible schoolgirl, afloat as if gravitation were not in force. I went on my way to find the road forward, behind the pudding, merely an empty plate. Now I'll try uh, myself a few poems in, uh, in English. The first one is entitled See the Packers. Writing to a colleague who sent me a poem about 800,000 liquidated redskins, see the papers for further details, that it is not enough to feel socially involved if you want to write a social poem. My God, all of a sudden, a ladybug, young since it has two dots, of this April evening during the National Book Week, motionless on the coup of my Remington. I can't use it, don't want to, writing what I write, and anyway, by my nature, add it to the 800,000 Reskins. So look at it, likewise motionless, admire its beauty, sputter, symbolic bugger, so-so that other reality has got pretty small. Nevertheless, it's there. So I integrated, for God's sake, in my missive as indirect evidence that no reality is an island. 800,000 liquidated redskins require, to put it precisely, 25 strokes. A single, life, spotted ladybug, my goodness, also. After which, a space. This will take some thinking. A drink, too, wouldn't do any harm. That letter can wait. Meanwhile, after 10 minutes of waiting, thinking, sipping, the insect turns out to have finished. The letter an open door. This is, this is not beautiful, this is not unreadable, this is not for children. This is no secret language, it doesn't elevate the people. This is the outside of your inside door. This you must recognize, your hand grown to the hedge. 
on the mat under your foot, the daily paper, the weekly, the monthly, the annual report. It's snowing in the heat, it's dying in this peace. The letter has eaten it all. Nothing is not true, nothing is past, nothing eaten away. A small poem entitled, Three Damsels Returned. One caught up late. Summer hangs heavily down from the sky. Even the smells are purpler. One has gone into the orchard. Sees there three damsels, naked as if they were there. Among the foreign fruits they sing what is beyond all senses. Throat wheat that reverses itself as pollen, milk of roses, worms looking for letters, lilies, lilies, lilies still. And the last one, landscape left behind, a poem in three parts. And so your landscape became old, even what was lucky enough to be inedible became digested. Once you stepped by mistake on a butterfly and what happened happened, at home an angel slipped out of your name, your mouth took over your lips, ink blot and fetch over and over again. Home is the hunter. Very old earth on your body, you stood in your wall like a window. You looked down on your slow motion fields, the bed that made you immortal for a day, made you familiar with death. A poem, reciting itself, blinking from your window pane as long as there was light. Nothing left to write. Everything cast iron. Everything cramped packed with time. And your way slipping away at the end, nothing should remain. Over your landscape, the same landscape, hand in glove, everywhere spaces where the poem was. Thank you. Monica van Pamel, a novelist, is also the president of the Penn Center in Flanders and the founder of the Women's Committee of International Penn. She will read an excerpt from her novel, The First Stone, translated by Nadiv Malfay and herself. Good evening. The novel The First Stone is about a woman who has lost a child and fled to Jerusalem in Israel. 
I will first read a small part in Dutch so that you can hear the sound. Regelmatig slaat Hagar de armen voor haar zware borsten, omvat linker en rechter schouder alsof ze zichzelf beetgrijpt, kijkt in de spiegel en kraait. Zonder die dingen zou ik best voor een man kunnen doorgaan. Je vergeet een kleinigheidje, merkt Dina op. En Roet zucht, die heeft problemen. Maar Alida lacht klokkend. Wel nee, je bent niet lesbisch. En wat dan nog? Wie wil er nu op een man lijken? vraagt Misha. Zacht als een lam en van kop tot teen behaard, de leeuw van Juda. De vriendinnen vinden hem aardig. Doet het er wat toe? Mee ergert zich. Ik heb de Romeinse import de laan uitgestuurd, omdat ze alleen maar om mijn borsten gaf, zegt Agar dreigend. Was dat geen man? vraagt Dina. En heeft hij jou niet de bons gegeven? vervolgt Goed. Every so often, Agar crosses her arms in front of her heavy breast, grasps her left and right shoulder as if seizing hold of herself, looks into the mirror and crows. Without those things, I could easily pass for a man. You're forgetting one detail, Dinah counters. And Ruth sighs. She has definitely got a problem. But Alida chuckles. A lesbian? You? And what if you are? Who on earth wants to look like a man anyway? Misha asks. Soft as a lamp and hairy from top to toe, the line of Judah. Her girlfriend think he's cute. Who cares anyway, May retort sharply. I sent that Romanian import packing because she was interested in my breasts only, Hagar says threateningly. I thought she was a man, Dinah replies. And didn't he dish you instead? Ruth continues. Agar burst out in tears and wants to have her breast amputated there and then. She can't bear them any longer. They're in the way. They give her a backache. Under the shower, she has to lift those cumbersome things one by one. It's ridiculous. All Romanians are gypsies. No one in this ice-cold world loves her. Her girlfriends take pity on her, giggling. Mine are no bigger than soldiers' buttons. Mine just hang there like empty water skins. And I've only got one left. Like midwives, they flutter around the easy chair in which Agar lies crying open mouth. May looks at Misha, who is busy uncurking a bottle of wine. While he pours the glasses, Agar interrupts her performance. Don't drink that wine. It will give you an headache. It was a present. Dinah brought the wine. As if it were pure poison, Agar repeats, Don't drink it. Misha freezes briefly, dumps the bottle on the table and drinks all the glasses one by one. The red wine seeps into his open shirt collar. The friends' shadow dance across the low ceiling like giants. Counters become blurred. It is as if the furniture is moving softly. Not as if it was about to start shifting itself, but 
as if it had chained and was shivering and shaking, an hour during which everything becomes fluid. May listens sharply to the rumbling city. A radio voice from above drones through the house, excited like a barking dog. The news sounds both triumphant and threatening. Only the movements of the footsteps can still be seen. It was late afternoon. The forests were shady and cool. A forester in hunter's green was cycling across the heathland. The cocks quarked shrilly in an attempt to outrival each other. The light pierced through the sun blinds in stripes. Grumpingly, Olga decided to have a wash. It was as if she had become fused with her clothes and a quick look into the mirror suffused. She obviously didn't like what she saw. She whisked her blows over her head with one hand, like a farmer would his working shirt, and started unbuttoning a thousand and, lit and one little hooks of a salmon pink straitjacket, sighing. May was standing behind the half-opened door of the darkened room and first saw Olga's neck and shoulders and then, in the forward tilted wall mirror, her throat with the deep cleavage between her breasts that protruded from it, veined blue and white, and so overwhelming that their sight took May's breath away. Olga scrubbed away with a flannel. One by one she lifted her breast, as if trying to throw lumber over her shoulder, patted them dry, powdered talcum powder over them, and started squeezing all that female opulence back into the straitjacket, as if putting part of herself under lock and key. The talcum powder surrounded her like a flower cloth, and she suppressed a fit of sneezing. She then emptied the waspassion in the farmyard, sending cackling chickens in all directions. The well May was strongly drawn towards, although it was not allowed to hang over the parapet to hear your voice echoed dully. What's the name of the major of Antwerp? Twerp. Or to throw pebbles into the water surface, or spit into the well. For besiegers and cattle thieves did exactly that, poison the sources first. Willem didn't think it was funny, although he stood there watching hand in pockets when the waterworks, so-called legally, stole his water and offered him a free registration plus a tap and running water. A meter had come with that tap. The calcified water that replaced that which smelled of moss had to be paid for by the litter. Many a little makes a nickel, Olga said bitterly. Water electricity, gas, the end of the month, acquired a new meaning. Goodbye, lunar calendar. Thank you. Jay Bernleff has published novels, short stories, stage plays, poems, essays, reviews, and translations. In 1984, he received the Konstantin Huygens Award for his entire body of work. 
He will read his poem, The Juggler, in Dutch. And Lynn Lohner will read the translation by Scott Rollins. Then Jay Burnlip will read an excerpt from his novel, Out of Mind, translated by Adrian Dixon. Strangers meeting on a poem. Something like that. Um, I first read the, the Dutch, the original. Bobby Sattler, jongleur. Wij kunnen het volgen, zijn uitleg. Maar zonder het wonder. Drie oranje ballen draaien rond staan plotseling in een zwevend rijtje stil of hangen om zijn hoofd. U ziet iets anders, terwijl ik steeds hetzelfde doe. Ik doe niets anders. Drie oranje ballen en mijn handen, dat is alles. Maar waarom? Mensen houden nu eenmaal van simpele dingen. Het doet ze even denken aan niets. En dat is de kunst op te gaan in drie oranje ballen, terwijl ik hier met lege handen voor u sta. Bobby Sadler, juggler. We can follow his explanation, but not the wonder of it. Three orange balls wheeling suddenly stands still, suspended in a row, or hanging around his head. You're seeing something else, while I keep on doing the same thing. I can't do anything else. Three orange balls and my hands, that's all. But how come? It's just that people like simple things. It reminds them briefly of nothing. That's the art of being engrossed in three orange balls. And here I am, standing before you, empty-handed. <clears throat> Actually, I was asked once by a Dutch television station to read this poem. And uh, <clears throat> you know how people from television always want that something happens on the screen. So <clears throat> they had the idea first to in invite Bobby Sattler uh, to juggle behind me <clears throat> while I read this poem. But then they discovered that Bobby Sattler was a little too expensive for Dutch television. <laughs> he was a very, he's a very famous British juggler, you know. So they invited the uh, Dutch juggler and, uh, but he was not so good as Bobby Sattler. I can tell you because we had to shoot this poem more than 35 times because he was standing behind me losing balls all the time. So I saw the balls coming from the left and the right, you know. So every time when I read this poem, I must think about this crazy story again. Um, 
well, now something that's um, completely different. Um, the novel Out of Mind tries to describe what happens inside the head of somebody who suffers from Alzheimer's disease, who loses his sense of place and time. And the protagonist of this book is Martin Klein and his wife is called Vera. They, um, they moved from Holland a long time ago and uh, settled in Boston where Martin was working um, as an employee for an international organization for the protection of fish around the world that was located in Boston. And they lived their whole, all their life and then he was pensioned and they, um, they retired in their house in Gloucester, north of Boston. And um, that's where the novel is located. Um, when I start, a, I start reading from page 69 of the English translation by Adriana Dixon. And at that moment in the novel, um, Martin is already quite mixed up. Uh, he, he doesn't know exactly uh, where he is. Uh, he has no sense of what's happening in the now and the past. It's all the same to him, and things change very quickly without him understanding what's happening. The doctor has come, Dr. Oakley, and he has advised Vera that she should lock her husband up in the house. I mean, not like a prisoner, but uh, he says every time that you let him go out on his own, in the first place he gets lost and he gets confused too. It's better for him to stay in the house so that he is living in a world that is simple and repetitive. And uh, she does what the doctor says, and she locks all the doors. Robert is the dog. That's the only name I think you should know. Yeah. We are going for a walk, Robert, I say. Just finish my coffee. Martin, the doctor says you're not to go out. Here you are. Vera pushes a bowl of yogurt and cornflakes in front of me. Since when does a doctor decide where I do go or not go? I'm not sick. At least I don't feel sick. You're a little confused. You might get lost. Get lost? Yes, because you sometimes forget which way to go. Not when Robert is there. He knows the way home, no matter where he is, even from the center of Boston. The other day you lost Robert when you were out. I remain silent. Finish your yogurt. Clearly, she is inventing stories to test me. If I confirmed them, I would be lost. I would lose myself in her fabrications. Maybe the doctor of hers told her to do it. Try to find out if he can still distinguish reality from fiction. A test. Better not reply. Better not respond to anything. I must retain my hold on ordinary life. To think that this should ever have become my ideal, holding on to the ordinary routine of events. At moments when I can no longer do that, I must try to imitate this routine of events. And if I even that should fail, only then would I have to start inventing life itself, but not her. Yes, I long for the pleasure of the daily routine, the course from one event to the next. It is necessary to fill your life but I can still use language. 
I remember clearly the first time I told my mother a lie. The amazement that my words were believed, even though they said things that were not true. That the difference couldn't be noticed. I was five, maybe six. I was late getting home. I said the bridge had stayed open a very long time because two barges had bumped into each other, while in fact I had stayed on out playing with a friend. Yes, that lie was a tremendous discovery. My father and mother nodded. So beside the visible and verifiable reality, there were many others, apparently indistinguishable from the real one. If need be, if I really have to, I shall invent a life for myself from minute to minute and believe in it, like my father and mother believed that story about the two barges bumping into each other's, one of which had almost sunk. Where can the children be, I say? It's late enough. Vera doesn't reply. She gets up. Or has the school bus gone past already, I ask. Yes, Martin, she says. You were still asleep when the bus went past. Did I sleep as long as that? It's because of the medicine. Dr. Ertley said it would make you sleep soundly, and he was right. I had to wake you up. What time is it then? Past 12. She leaves the kitchen. Robert follows her. I'm coming, Robert. I always feel a bit stiff in the mornings, but I will soon go when I take my walk. Have I gained that much weight recently? My coat is so tight. And why is the door locked? I tuck at the doorknob a couple of times. Maybe it's stuck or frozen. Come along, Robert. I wait for the dog and look at the coat stand. Hurriedly, I take off Vera's wine-colored coat and correct my mistake before she catches me when she comes out of the laundry room. Have you seen Robert? He's outside. I'll be off then. She posts herself with her back against the front door. The doctor says you mustn't. I'm not sick. There is nothing wrong with me. Robert, I call out. Robert, come here. He'll come back of his own accord. Am I never allowed out again then? Not now. I want, to, I want to go fishing. I made a date with Gerard and Klaas. I lied to her. Go on, let me. Come along to the kitchen. You haven't finished your food. At school they say too much dairy produce is bad for your teeth. But what can you do? Once I'm out of the house, I can do what I like. I sit down by my plate of porridge and chew demonstratively. In a minute, she's bound to say, don't dawdle so over your food. Has Pop come to work yet? Martin, it's me, Vera. Don't shout at me. She hides her face in her hands. Why is she so upset all of a sudden? Why is she crying so heartrendingly? Don't cry. I don't want you to cry. Vera, she sobs. I'm Vera. Yeah, of course you're Vera, I say. Did you think I didn't know? She suddenly gets up. I'm just going to drop in on Alan Robbins, she says. I'll be back in a moment. You do the crossword, meanwhile. Strange that she didn't tell me she was going out. Maybe she has gone shopping. I quite like being at home on my own, so I can secretly peep in Pop's desk. On Sundays, he lets me draw at it. 
a white sheet of paper on a base green blotter covered with ink stains and the marks left by Pop's blotted letters. When you look for a long time, you see all kinds of things in it. Animals, faces, the door of the little cupboard inside the desk, behind which there are three deep drawers filled with papers, is locked, but I have the key in my pocket. I pull out the middle drawer and grope with one hand among his papers. I hold a letter in my hand, part of a letter, for there is no beginning. It starts somewhere in the middle. In the afternoon, I was free, and I went for a walk in the Latin Quarter. It was pleasant weather for strolling along the galleries and second-hand bookstores. My fingers itched, but my French isn't good enough for reading. I bought a few antique postcards of Paris, Paris which I enclose. Two more days, and I shall be back with you. In spite of the delights of the Ville Lumière, I miss you all very every hour of the day, especially you, when seeing all these beautiful things. Kisses, Martin. I pull the drawer right out of the desk and turn it upside down, but no matter how I search and rummage among the papers, the rest of the letter doesn't emerge. Only piles of documents related to INCO meetings when the club was still housed in Bonn. I remember those five years in Bonn, from 62 until 67 to be precise. But Paris? I sit down at the desk and reread the fragment. Without a doubt, it is my handwriting. You've been to Paris, I say aloud. But the sentence doesn't help me. I might just as well have made it up, now, at this moment. If I can't remember it, the words mean nothing. I fold the letter twice and slip it into my inside pocket. Outside, the dog is barking. Robert, I say, and get up from my desk and go to the window. Barking, Robert dashes over the snow around the house, following me, but all the doors are locked. They have locked me in and left me on my own. I stand in the back room and watch Robert nervously circling round an ash tree and jumping up against it so that the snow falls from the branches onto his back. This startles him so much that he comes darting towards me like an arrow and leaps up at the window, only to slide back, his claws scratching across the glass. He looks at me with his dark, moist eyes, full of sadness. I have no choice, otherwise he will die of cold. I pull a chair from under the table, take hold of the back with both hands, and push its legs through the glass, which falls out with a great clatter. A few more thrusts, and the hole is large enough for Robert to jump through. I run my fingers briefly through his damp pelt. He sniffs at the heap of papers beside my desk, and then lies down in front of the radiator as if nothing had happened. I feel a bit cold. A cup of hot tea would do me good. I go to the kitchen and turn on the gas. The kettle. Where is the kettle? Kettle, I say, kettle. But the thing is nowhere, not in any of the kitchen cupboards. Perhaps in the living room. Vera sometimes uses it to water the plants. Not there either. I open the store cupboard, but no matter how I search behind plates and glasses, I can't find a, bear, a bar of chocolate anywhere. Nor are there any pear drops. Maybe she has gone to the store. I sit down at the piano and first press the damper pedal before I start. Grandpa is having his afternoon snooze upstairs, so I must play very quietly. 
The keys move heavily and stiffly. Or is it that my fingers are too cold? Then I hear the front door open. I'm in here, Grandma, I call out to her from beside the piano. In a wine-red coat with large black bone buttons, Vera rushes past me to the kitchen, sniffing loudly. Then she comes back and runs towards a broken window. She looks first at the shattered glass and then at me. Jesus, I hear her mutter. Thank you. Hans van der Warsenberg is a poet and author of books for children. He will read his poem, South Wall, in Dutch, and then Lawrence Joseph will read the translation by Peter Nijmeyer. Hans van Warsenberg will then read uh, more poems of his, translated by Claire Nicholas White, Peter Nijmeyer, and, and Peter Galinsky. Lawrence Joseph's third book of poems, Before Our Eyes, will be published by Farah Strauss and Giroux this August. Zuidwal. Midden op de Zuidwal, tussen eeuwige lindenbomen, waar zag men of bestond verval, is de jongen teruggekomen. Spelend met herfstbladeren, sneeuw onder de klompen, bloesem op het hoofd, loopt hij door kniehoog beemdgras, spijkerpunt hard de pijlen, de boog schiet klaar, zoekt de jongen door de dagen. Struikelt wanneer hagel naar de tanden slaat, zeewind blaast en vol verzet water breekt. In zijn blauw valies herinnert de jongen wegen en scapulieren. Vroeg neon buigt er het glas van de droom. Zonder speeksel tast in lommerrijke avonden. Alles ligt klaar op de Zuidwal. De zee, de reizen, de kazige schimmel van de nacht, omkeerbaarheid van het woord, de luchtspiegeling van de dood en altijd late nazang in het oor. Lippen vol kus en huidherinnering sluimeren, haken nog niet aan taal, raken traag de binnenwand. Zo bedenkt hij haar, onstuimig, telkens weer, terwijl kruiddamp vervliegt. De vader vult de glazen, de moeder breidt in treur, de jongen buigt de takken van de hemel. Even is hij terug, verdwijnt in zichzelf en schemert in een toekomst die zo lang verleden is. South Wall. At the heart of South Wall, amid eternal lime trees, 
Where did one see if decay was really there? The boy came back to all this. Playing with autumn leaves, snow under clogs, blossom on the head, he walks through knee-high bluegrass, hard as nail tips. The arrows, the bow drawn to shoot, the boy searches through the days, stumbles when hailstones hit back at the teeth, sea wind blows and breaks, resisting water. In his blue valise, the boy remembers roads and scapulars. Early neon, there bends the glass of the dream. Sinful saliva fumbles in leafy evenings. All eyes waiting on Southwall. The sea, the journeys, the cheese-like mold of the night, the reversibility of the word, the fata morgana of death, and always a last hymn in the ears. Lips full of kisses and skin, remembrance, slumber, haven't yet been hooked to language. Slowly touch the inner wall. That way he invents her, frenzied over and over while gun smoke evaporates. The father fills the glasses, the mother knits in sorrow. The boy bends the branches of heaven. And briefly, he is back, vanishes into himself, and dims into a future which passed a long time ago. The sea, the journeys. The sea, the journeys that keep moving on, day after day in your falling shadow. The words, always those images, the eye of the needle, your skin growing solver, the voices also, which you do not take along into the creaking brain, the rooms that never figure in the slides, and the evening air, restless, wall to wall, always the words, the writing hand that moves. My father dances a tango. You're dancing to keep up a thirst, the waving hair and sand that fades, an horizon there for the taking, a hut toppling over in the head. Breathlessly, I repeat the names of harbors as if I'm praying. Looking over your shoulder, I see the orchestra playing. Your eyes, my father dances a tango. It was at the pavement cafe in Bahia. They don't dance the tango in Vienna. Bandunion, the sun, you turned to wax. The caption blurs and disappears. The misfortune in your hand. The glass you raised. Your eye that saw the powder breaking. Cigarette smoke and lipstick. The veil of remembrance shakes the music. My father dances a tango. From blue agave in Mexico, they make tequila. 
And this poem is called Blue Agave. Stumbling over pigs, the ankles twisting in the black dust, he neared the village, where fires still smoldered and would not die out that night. Women vanished into their shadow, horses whinnied. Gloomily, the man gave way. Only you knew who I was when I came. Silently, you filled glass after glass. You sang for me until I slept and dreamt of you stumbling. And the last two poems are from a cycle it's called uh, Felt by Lust. And the subtitle is Asparagus, Asparagus. These frigid fingers of dark, loving death, furtively bedded in blankness of sand and shade, yet all too eager to touch and move. Earth drawn water in the hand of life, life arising, life aspiring without sound from the void of underground, queen of darkness, see your treasure torn, felt by lust, rise up among the mist of morn and face your sentence. What makes it so translucent, so palatable, the tail of the golden ham, its delicate yellow crust, the long table, the food, the evening, candles and a fondling breeze, the talk, delicate, delicate words, and the smile of wine. Nothing, only this at the verge of time, on the grounds of life, asparagus, asparagus, body and soul purging, dissolving, the smell of night forever. Thank you. Rudolf Heil, a novelist and editor, is also currently president of the Dutch Penn Center. He is unable to join us this evening due to illness. Mary Morris and Jan Hanout will read excerpts from Rudolf Heil's novel, Beloved Venom, translated by Rina Vergano. Mary Morris is the author of two collections of short stories, two novels, and two travel memoirs. Her next book, A Mother's Love, is a novel to be published in April by Doubleday. Jan Hanut, a friend of Rudolf Heil, is, is on the board of a Dutch literary publishing house. The book of Rudolf is about euthanasia. He has chosen three parts, and as you can imagine, one in the beginning, one in the middle, and the other one is the end of the novel. To what extent do we have the right to be condoned when we must play executioner 
for her own parents. It can hardly be coincidence that I am a woman. In this world, everything depends on the contribution of daughters. The most that men can do is to make the circumstances in which women must do their work as unfavorable as possible. It's always men who bring up the subject of their dignity, men like my father. Just before his death, he nearly wrote a final treaty about his own dignity. He had certainly talked about it, I'm almost tempted to write, if there was anyone able to whine about dignity, it was my father. He wanted to die like a statue, exemplary, even in death. Secretly, he must have thought about how it would be, his death, his deathbed as a gigantic lecture room. All the students he had ever thought gathered around him, sensitive microphones and, of course, a camera so that even the galleries can receive the entire spectacle. Ladies and gentlemen, today I am not going to speak about dying. By way of a change, I am going to demonstrate it. A shadow runs through the ranks. Girls nudge each other. The man has always been a gripping speaker, always good for a laugh, too. Jealously, his colleagues crossed the canals, seeing him orating. No one was bored by him, except the dimwits, of course. Now let's see how he brings off dying. If you ask me, he'll have himself died during a fit of laughter, the eternal joke. You can count on, his, on him having planned that. After all, he had months of virtual immobility to think about it, while his daughter helped to nurse the nurse to keep him clean, fed him like a baby. Undoubtedly, women think that their sex is the only way for unborn children to reach freedom. In my life, and I may offer you this as a small thought to take with you on your own life's journey, the female sex has always been the way to freedom in the opposite direction. I imagine this as an enormous womb. A few more seconds and I will return to it. Watch me carefully. One day, you too will experience the same. I have taught you how to get things out of the earth. Take one last look before you put me back into her. The pompous ass. Before leaving the earth, he manages to depict death as a womb. If not to his students, then certainly to me, his daughter. He hadn't had any student for years. He wouldn't even have been able to fill a consulting room with them. That was what he would have liked. They all coming back to him, one after the other, for his personal advice. Dignity, what a word. I remember him and think he died with dignity. He died after an injection. His dying lecture was inaudible. He wavered when it came to it, said to me, I can't be much longer. Do you want me to warn the doctor? Wait a bit, he said. I don't want to embarrass him by doing it too early, the hypocrite. But I couldn't call him that. Who can co comprehend another person just before his death? I looked at him and thought, what must he be feeling? Perhaps he didn't know himself, or did he just think he knows? Did he believe profoundly to the end in that one great inspiration, a light that would illuminate everything, life and death, the mysteries of dying? In the end, it was left to me. It was not for nothing that he had appointed his daughter deputy manager of the Deaths with Dignity Department. He saw me as his insurance policy. I myself have borne no children. 
I don't know the meaning of that pain. I don't even know for sure what that I am his daughter. Men and children can never be certain of that fact, but the assumption alone means that I automatically finish off his dirty work for him. Did he ever stop just one second to ask himself if I could do it? I nodded to the doctor and he pushed the needle into my father's emaciated body. Goodbye, daddy, off you go. But I did not say that. I stood there silently, not even any tears left. I looked at him, awaiting the moment when I could make myself useful once again. Put the world to rights. Act as if humanity is civilized. Who is this all about, anyway? His name is Paul Melchers, and he was an archaeologist. Like an American film from the 50s, where everything turns out all right in the end, that gives you the courage to sit it out and face all the misery, because it always ends in paradise or in a garden or on a balcony in the southern heat. At any rate, in an embrace, it ends with love. How do you find out if a dying old man's suffering has become unbearable, I demand of the doctor. How do you measure something like that? He shakes his head, but I have to know. We have to know something. Without some guideline, no matter how vague, I cannot ask for him to be given that final injection. When is life unbearable? Is that a piece of knowledge we should have in our possession? The best preserved legacy of mankind's thousands of years experience of pain? At a certain moment, the deterioration becomes total, said the doctor. You'll see it. Then it's inescapable. I am still unable to see anything. I spend hours gazing at my father. The only conclusion I can reach is that it is, becoming, is, that it is gradually becoming unbearable for me. Enough, screams a restless voice which refuses to leave despite my pleas. A terrible shame comes over me when I realize that I am creating a barrier between us by thinking of myself first. Why can't I succeed, even for a few seconds, in getting a complete picture of his impotent struggle on the screen of my memory so that I can understand him, learn something from him, receive a final gift in the shape of a secret formula from the hands of my own father? He used to behave towards me just as vaguely as he did towards my mother, friendly, always courteous. I've never heard him shout. If only he would now, it would be a comfort. I don't know why, but that's how it is, the surprise of my life. My father shouting at me once before he dies, and damn it, damn it, we finally understand each other. I love him, he shouts. I take him in my arms to warm him. I sit next to his bed, trying to imagine him doing his work in Tuscany. Faded jeans, his shirt hanging open, dripping sweat. Now and then he looks aside at Anne. I let him look at Anne and bring him back amongst people. The doctor has spoken of dignity as well. For him, dignity is the bottom line. The doctor insists that my father die with dignity. He's taking the words out of his own patient's mouth. How often have we talked about dignity this last year? Laura, he says, Laura, sweetheart. I sit down next to him. Look, he says. Laboriously, he leans to one side and slides open the drawer of the cabinet next to the bed. He has sought expert advice. He has obtained the correct dosage along with the antiemetics necessary to help him keep it down. 
I was allowed to hold the little box in which he kept it all, as if admiring a gift he had just been given, at last, something he has been longing for his whole life. You just have to be patient and everything will turn out right. Possibly, he said, and then he repeated that word, you may possibly have to help me. But you agreed to that, aren't you? I didn't answer. In a gentle, empathetic tone, I could have said, of course, or of course, Daddy. I didn't want to have to feed him that drink, see the look of distaste on his face, to leave the world disgusted. Does it have to be so banal? Doesn't the pharmaceutical industry have any flavorings which could at least furnish the tongue with a pleasant sensation at the moment of demise? What do you fancy when you're dying? Peppermint? Honey? Or would you prefer menthol? Champagne? Not a bad idea. Champagne on the threshold of eternity. The flesh in which the experts claim our life passes before us. How do I imagine it? A rose-colored invention to convince myself that I have experienced so much and that the high points will be rolled past me one more time. A pleasant thought. You lie back and watch it. In the meantime, life cautiously turns away from you. But just think about what constituted the high points. It's hard enough if you actually have to choose. Perhaps just for once, a return to that ultimate moment at the beginning in which I, was for, in which I formed the complete whole this, those who brought me forth and who had, at any rate, resolved to preserve their world of love to the end. To return to my mother's womb, to come out and be able to make resolutions myself. We are going to approach it completely differently this time. This time, mommy, we are not going to lose sight of each other again. If you tumble down the slope, then I'll raise you up out of the valley. The following had been, has been in my mind for a long time. Three hunters are walking in the snow, followed by their dogs. They appear from between bare trees on the edge of a hill. They come from the still, white world where no people live. They are carrying a poultry catch with them, a hare. Armed with their spears bluffing through the snow, they are not returning with happy news. It's winter everywhere. Below them in the valley, life goes on, a life on ice. One day the sun will make the snow disappear, but the bare peak in the distance will always remain in inaccessible, a pointed piece of stone. In the distance, it is always winter. Behind the hunters in that place that the artist does not reveal to us live animals. They have killed one of them. The dogs look tired. People are stoking up a fire watched by a child. Later, I return to Vienna once again to see hunters in the snow. Just at that moment, I realized that my father's work always took place in the summer in a diametrically opposed landscape, in the vicinity of cypresses, oleanders, hills full of sweatness. The hunters came there too, one day. Sometimes I travel in my thoughts to the village in the distance, close to the steep mountain slope. It's just a couple of houses with a church, nothing more than a hamlet, small and insular. One would imagine oneself to be secure there. Somewhere during a, during a journey, spurred on by an irrepressible desire, I walk into a completely different museum. It's a small and quiet. In all the years of its existence, visited by few others than the founder and owner, the lone caretaker. In one room that are glass cases containing human tableaus, executed in papier-mâché. 
These tableaus are untouched by the fashion of the day. They are hardly collector's items. But when I stand before them in that intimate room, it is as if they are drawn me into them one by one. With a numbling certain certainty, I am sized by the idea that I am part of this make-believed world. These tableaus have been made for me. But what possessed the maker? He has left me of all people out of his tableaus when I should have been his most favorite subject. For years I've avoided this room. Now that they are closing it for good, I understand that I have come too late because of this. I will, and because of this, I will never be rid of the desire to stay here. My trembling hand delivers the space to darkness. Never mind, says an all too familiar voice. The light have gone out anyway. But no one knows how long it would have burned on. Nobody knows the, ex the extent of the time that was still allotted me. A few minutes. Do you want to stay and watch? The man lying there is my father. You had that bike with the child's seat. I, remem I remember that suddenly. Funny, I should think of it now. You wobbled slightly as we started off, but after that we rode straight as a die along the dike skirting the town. Fields of reeds in a warm summer's afternoon. It rises suddenly before me, the way I leaned my head against your back. We often used to sing, too, on our rides, crossing over on the ferry. It's still there, Daddy. Did you ever go back there, even if, even if only in your thoughts? Should I hold the mirror to your lips, the glass still mists over. Wait, it mists so slightly, a whisper and the sun on that dark, unruffled water. I still remember that sun, the unruffled water. Thank you. Gerard Jan Reinders is a, is a playwright and, and, and director. His latest play, Buff, pre premiered in March 1992 and was performed at the uh, Palermo Festival the same year. Buff was translated by Rina Vergano. Gerard Jan Reinders will introduce the reading of an excerpt uh, to be uh, read by Dave Shelley, Jeff Webster, and Carla Mulder. Dave Shelley and Jeff Webster are associates of the Worcester Group, an independent uh, performing troupe that has been working with Gerard Jan Reinders in Holland. Carla Mulder, a performer from Amsterdam, is currently living in New York City on a travel grant while observing the work of the Worcester Group. A video of Buff uh, performed in Holland will be shown following the reading. And after the video, please join us for a reception outside the auditorium.
I hope you still manage. Uh, Leafhaber, or Buff, is a play about a theater critic whose name is Leafhaber. Um, he is a critic who may have seen too much theater in his career. Although there are three characters in the play, Mr. Leafhaber, his wife, and their son, it's almost a monologue. A monologue in which, which Mr. Leafhaber rages against theater. He accuses of being dead. It has nothing to do with reality. It is not concerned with the world. It is blind and it's deaf. But as Mr. Leafhaber rages against the theater, he is blind and deaf for what is happening in his own family. Uh, Leafhaber is impossible, the title or the name, impossible to translate. Although Buff, I think, is very brilliant. Because Leafhaber means lover or somebody who is fond of or maybe even addicted to. But it happens to be also the name of a well-known theater critic in the Netherlands. So how do you tra tra translate that? I mean, Frank Rich <laughs> is wrong. Um, I'm very glad those three actors uh, are willing to read the fragment, because the whole play would be far too long. And after they uh, have read this fragment, you will see exactly the same part as it was staged in Amsterdam uh, last year. The 64-year-old grandfather who was stabbed by his sons in the mobile home because he'd been interfering with his granddaughters, four and six years old, respectively. I want to see that mobile home depicted with the miniature poodle and in the corner the small pair of panties belonging to the youngest girl. I blink my eyes. Yet another death scene. I leaf through the evening paper. Twenty tragedies. I go to the theater, get slipped a free ticket at the box office by an ex-stewardess who's come down in the world, and you leaf through the creatively illustrated program, take my place on the musty plush, on the hard wooden seat, the house lights dim, and yes, no drama. Nothing. Everything empty, everything dead, even the death scenes, dead. I am bound to you like Prometheus to his rock, even if my love should become the vulture, eternally rending my liver, uh, promises the program notes. <laughs> I have seen nothing. No Prometheus, no rock, no vulture, no liver, no love, nothing. And the actress comes on stage. A non-role came on stage. Did an actress come on? What came? Peter reaches orgasm loudly. Peter, dead. Fuck. Fuck, 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 fuck. Dad. A raincoat on the hall stand of the rehabilitation center. A steely look in the border currency exchange. A shivering silhouette in the public swimming pool. Pathetic, dangerous, possibly heart-rending, but warm. Life, drama. An actress comes on stage, 
Plaster comes on stage. Dead plaster. I'm through with it. To China, New Guinea, Jordan, Minnesota. Take Jordan, Minnesota. Every traffic sign there is a Shakespearean play. The local supermarket says more than the collected stage literature. A bird flies over, and I think, the prompt of the drama I'd like to see, but never get to see. The prompt is there. The wings are there. But where is the drama on stage? In every flower petal, I see it quivering. In every sweaty foot, I smell it. In every theater, I wait for it in vain. Peter starts to give himself a shot of heroin. Yesterday, on Marnock Street, a tramp. I haven't eaten yet today, he says. Well, you should do it then, I say. <laughs> well, yes, 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 but I spent five years in Paraguay, he says. Well, that, those kind of people, that kind of life. Or the woman on the Linden Canal, with each step she took, I had the feeling she was pulverizing a child's skull. <laughs> At the butcher's, I see the butcher cutting meat. Well, that's me, I think, that meat. On the television, someone kicks a ball into a goal. That's me, I think, that goal. Someone sticks a stamp on an envelope. I am that tongue. I see myself in the mirror. That's me, I think. I sit in the theater. I see the stage. Nothing. I think nothing. Peter misses the vein. Fuck. Peter. Dad. Sometimes I get jealous when I see a net full of oranges so cozy all together. Or... That story about the pediatrician who longed for a child, well, he got the child, but he hated it, apparently. He hated it, and then he got a divorce. <laughs> I recognize that. When I was newlywed, I used to feel guilty if the telephone rang. If I turned on the light, I used to close my eyes. I used to button my coat in order to feel I had taken a decision. I mean, I so easily feel so many things which don't even exist, but when I'm in the theater, I feel nothing. There isn't anything. Art fart. <laughs> Peter misses a vein again. Peter, Dad. Sometimes when it's very late, after one of those unpruned Chekhovs, one of those, one of those cadavers which they haven't dared to dissect, a cadaver lasting five hours, you know, an art cadaver, and I get home very late, and you're already asleep, and you're lying in bed breathing, one hand above your head, and the war is broken out, your war in your head, and soon you wake up. I know in order to forget that war in your hand goes immediately to your little bush. You open your eyes and you ask, was it any good? Well, never any war on stage, I complain. And that is the drama of the day. That is the real dialogue. Was it any good? Never any war. Or at night, on the freeway, coming back from an opening in the provinces, you know, the saddest opening nights, provincial opening nights, with provincial opening night audiences, the saddest audiences, a house full of dead fish, with dead fish eyes watching the dead. And then I see all those little red lights in front of me on the freeway, and I feel like kissing them one by one, French kissing them, tying them, sucking them up, and then I feel something which I haven't felt the whole theater evening, the whole provincial opening night theater evening. Then I'm alive on the freeway while I'm tonguing those taillights in my head. Peter hits a vein, falls over satiated. Boom. Peter. Dad. I'm into Zen, of course. Just go Zen. Had a lot of training there in the stalls amongst the audience, a little stunned by the aftershaves and the perfumes around me. Very conscious. Uh, and if I take a breath, the auditorium breathes with me. 
it gets bigger and smaller again. Everything gets bigger and shrinks again. Even the actors get bigger and shrink again. Then it seems as if they're alive, those dead actors, those dead art actors, those plaster actors. Well, I breathe life into them, my life. I breathe them into roles, into my roles, but not for very long, always for just a moment, a fraction of a tenth of a second, and then they're dead again, those roles. And then I've already lost sight of them. Then I think I'm sitting opposite a bookcase, and suddenly all the books fall out. Dramaturgs, they're just the same. I think, I think of a respectable family eating cauliflower. Suddenly, ten pit bull terriers storm into the room, eat the family up, and the cauliflower. Or of a girl who's singing a song and somewhere a glass falls over. Or I suddenly think two people give each other a kiss. Well, that's impossible. One gives and the other takes. Or why don't birds ever collide whilst opinions do? And then I think of a paper clip of an ironing board and then everything's okay again. And then I can look at the stage again and then fuck, 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 fuck. Stop it. Pack it in. No more reviews. Phone the editor tomorrow. No more Zen lessons. Fuck. Fuck, 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 Dead. fuck. Dead. They can just goddamn just pick up a newspaper. They can read, can't they? Here. Father picks up the newspaper. Hallelujah, amen, apartheid is over. Drama. Drama with a happy ending, although that remains to be seen. But drama. Here. Dutchman supplies Iraq with mustard gas. Drama. Mass murder, yes, but living drama. Lovers advocates and open Europe. Comedy. Australian talks, leads talks on Northern Ireland. Burlesque. Euthanasia for a quarter of AIDS patients, tragedy, drama. There's no getting away from it. Wherever you look, wherever you listen, wherever you dream, you can't avoid it. Even if you wanted to, you can't avoid it. Nobody except them, except those, except those wretched theater artists, those actors who don't play roles anymore, who don't play actors anymore, who don't even play ideas anymore, who only play art. Not even play, who only are art, not even are, who are not, who are dead art, who are dead art. Fuck, 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 fuck. Thank you.
64-jarige grootvader, die door zijn zonen wordt neergestoken in de staakherven omdat hij zich vergeven had aan zijn kleindochter, dus respectievelijk 4 en 6 jaar oud. Die staakherven, die wil ik verbeeld zien, met dat poedeltje. En in de hoek het onderboekje van het jongste meisje. Regenjas. Aan de kapstok van het reconcilieringsgebouw. Een stilse blik 
En het wisselkantoor. Een bibberend silhouetje. Een sportfondsenbad. Treurig. Gevaarlijk. Hartverscheurend. Wellicht. Maar. Warm. Even. Ja. Dan komt er naar kies op. Dan komt gips op. Dood gips. Dood is met de binnenbloot. Ik stop. Ik ga naar China. Nieuw Guinea. Oude Pekela. Nee, nou, oude Pekela. Ieder verkeersbord daar is een Shakespeare. De plaatselijke supermarkt vertelt mij meer dan de verzamelde toneelliteratuur. Er vliegt een vogel over. De souffleur, denk ik, van het drama dat ik zien wil, maar nooit eens in krijgt op het toneel. Nooit. Goed. De souffleur is er, de coulissen zijn er. Maar waar is het drama op het toneel? In ieder bloemblad zie ik het tintelen. In iedere zweetvoet ruik ik het. In ieder theater wacht ik erop. Te vergeefs. Gisteren in de Marnikstraat een zwerver. Ik heb nog niks gegeten, zegt hij. Dat zou ik dan maar eens gewoon doen, zeg ik. Ja, maar ik heb vijf jaar in Marnikstraat gezeten, zegt hij. Dat soort mensen, dat soort leven. Of dat oude vrouwtje op de Lindegracht. Bij iedere stap die ze zetten had ik het gevoel alsof ze een kinderschedeltje verprijzelden. Iemand op de televisie de bal in het doel. Ben ik, denk ik, dat doel. Iemand pakt een postzegel op een enveloppe, ben ik niet dom. Zie ik mezelf in de spiegel? Ben ik, denk ik. 
zit ik in het theater. Niets, denk ik. Niets. Ik word wel jaloers als ik een netje persinesappel zie in een netje zo gezellig bij elkaar. Op dat verhaal van die kinderarts die graag een kind wou hebben, kreeg hij een kind, haatte hij het, bleek, hij haatte het. Toen is hij gescheiden, dat herken ik wel. En toen ik pas getrouwd was, voelde ik me al schuldig als het telefoon ging. Als ik het licht aandeed, sloot ik mijn ogen. Soms knoopte ik mijn jas dicht alleen maar om het gevoel te krijgen dat ik een besluit had genomen. Ik bedoel, ik voel zo gauw zoveel dingen die er ook helemaal niet zijn. Maar zit ik in het theater? Niets voel ik. Niets. Er is ook niets. Kunst. Kunst. Ik 
opzet. Gewoon opzet. Heel veel voor getreden. Daar in die zaal tussen dat publiek. Beetje bedwelmd door de aftershakes en de parfums om me heen. En adem. Heel bewust. En als ik dan zo adem, dan ademt die zaal met mij mee. Die wordt groter en dan weer kleiner. Alles wordt groter en krabbelt dan weer terug. Ook de acteurs. Zelfs de acteurs worden groter en krabbelen weer terug. En dan lijkt het op ze leven. Die dode acteurs. Die dode kunstacteurs, die gipsacteurs. Ik blaas ze leven in. Mijn leven. Ik adem ze tot rollen. Mijn rol. Maar dat duurt natuurlijk nooit erg lang. Altijd maar heel even een fractie van een tiende van een seconde. En dan zijn ze alweer dood, die rollen. Dan zien ze al niet meer. Dan denk ik, ik zit tegenover een boekenkast en ineens vallen alle boeken om. De amateurgen, ook zoiets. Of ik denk aan een keurig zinnetje dat bloemkool eet. En ineens stormen er pink, pink poels naar binnen. Dat een liedje zien. En ergens valt een glas om. Of ik denk ineens. Twee mensen geven elkaar een hand. Dat kan helemaal niet. De een geeft en de ander neemt.
tot verdomme gewoon een krant pakken. 